0: long last, I am so, so, so excited to welcome you all back to the Content Lab podcast, the only digital marketing podcast for content managers, content creator, creators, and marketers who want to learn how the content sausage really gets made. But since I fired up my mic last not a ton has changed. I'm still the web and interactive content director here at Impact. I still have a codependent relationship with my coffee maker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there is something very different about the podcast content lab itself. I am not alone because I am returning with a co-host, the one and only John Becker, who recently joined our team at Impact over the summer as our very first editorial content associate. Hello, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Woo-hoo. Welcome. Welcome. So, John, let's pretend it's like kindergarten cop. You know, who was your daddy? What does he do? What do you do at Impact? Tell us a little bit about yourselves. Help the audience get to know you.
1: Absolutely. Well, hi, everybody. Glad to be here with Liz working on this show together. Um, I, as Liz said, I'm the editorial content associate at Impact, which means that I do all sorts of stuff relating to the editorial content that gets on our website. I write, I interview people, I edit drafts, I do writing coaching with team members to help them organize their prose and tell their stories and share their expertise. Um, I write some news reactions and, and uh, strategize with how best we can share our, our company and our message and our team with the world. I've been, uh, I, lived in, I live in Connecticut, I grew up in Connecticut, but I've lived in different places in the world, in California and upstate New York. Vermont, and Massachusetts, and even overseas. Uh, I worked as a teacher, a curriculum developer, uh, a writer, a designer, um, done lots of different things. And I've been at Impact now for about six months, and I love it, and I'm excited for episode one. So what's interesting about you,
0: uh, aside obviously from your deep expertise and all of the stuff that you bring to the table, is you are actually a, a textbook example of what we coach a lot of businesses about and a lot of clients is about when they're hiring someone for any sort of content manager role, which we called an editorial content associate here at Impact just because we have a deep bench when it comes to our content team. Um, but when people are hiring content managers, there's this reflex to hire within their industry and to consider it a negative or a detractor if somebody has all the skill sets and qualifications except industry experience. Like, oh, they've, they've never worked in the pool noodle industry before. Like, I really need someone who knows pool noodles. And you didn't come from a digital marketing background.
1: That's true. Or a pool noodle background, actually. Very
0: disappointing. Um, Very disappointing. I,
1: I think that's totally true. Uh, I think there is a hesitancy to hire from outside the industry, but I think that's, that's detrimental. Um, you know, so often we're creating content for people who are not within our industry, basically all the time. And having someone from outside of the industry brings that outside perspective to everything, that sort of ability to ask questions that only an outsider, the perspective that only an outsider has. Um, And I've learned a ton about content marketing in my last six months. Uh, I'm by uh, by no means an expert, but I know enough that I can ask good questions. And I think my natural, tendency towards curiosity and um, my ability to dig deep and do research has allowed me to tell stories about even things that I don't know a lot about.
0: Well, I think also, especially when it comes to any sort of content management role, a lot of what you're going to be doing is for lack of a better explainer, getting people out of their own way, especially when you're interviewing them for content. Because people, I think, especially when they're used to talking to other peers in their industry who speak the same language, use the same jargon, we all start speaking the same way. And it takes someone like you to come in and say, so, so explain that to me as if I'm not you and actually the people you're trying to reach. And it, it gets people to break that vicious cycle of Saying the same old, staid lines about how to explain stuff. And also, it gets people to start expressing their opinions, their true opinions, and sounding more like a a human being, which I think actually leads us nicely into today's topic, for which I understand I am in the hot seat. So, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to be talking about today? Indeed, you are. Delicious coffee.
1: Indeed, you are in the hot seat, Liz. So, our topic for today is getting personal in content and I know that you're an expert in this and I wanted to pick your brain about a couple of things that you do at impact. Um, but then also talk more broadly about what a lot of people who create content or edit content or publish content, um, should be thinking about and doing and learning and practicing when they are creating content and sharing about their own, uh, you know, themselves and their own lives and what they write. So I wanted to start with you, uh, and your role at Impact, one of the most visible things that you do is you write the, pot, uh, the, the newsletter, The Latest. Can you talk a little bit about that structure and format before we get into particulars?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Latest is our email newsletter, and the whole value proposition behind it is that three times a week, I put together this hand-curated, personalized email newsletter that gives you the most relevant and actionable and important digital sales and Uh, marketing news that you need to know in order to do your job effectively. Um, To be perfectly frank, I never wanted to do this newsletter. Um, I am much more comfortable, or I would say I've been doing this now for almost a year. A year ago, I would have said I'm much more comfortable hitting publish on a three to 4,000 word article or piece of pillar content than hitting send on an email to tens of thousands of people because we have... Uh, more than 30,000 people who have subscribed to this newsletter. So it's, it's absolutely terrifying. It's digital stage fright, so to speak. <laughs> um, but the structure of it is, is fairly simple. You know, there, I hand select a few articles that I think are a blend of, this is the news you need to know, distilled down and contextualized so you know what you're supposed to be doing with this information. Um, sometimes a process or a teach Uh, and then other times it's, you know, impact stories that are personal or, um, you know, overviews and examples, like it, it varies from issue to issue and each one starts with a personalized letter. There are different segments that I get to play around with and saying, you know, Hey, this is what I'm reading. Or if it's the Saturday issue, this is what I think is funny. Um, for those who receive it, I have had a couple of interesting responses to it, which is, Oh, it's a really a person behind this. Yes. I am the human behind the newsletter, so if you receive it, that is actually me doing that three times a week. That's, that's the broad, high-level overview.
1: So the sections in which you share topical news or articles that come out, you know, those seem pretty normal. Those always fit into a newsletter. That's what mm-hmm. a newsletter is. But like you said, there is that personal letter introduction.
0: Talk mm-hmm. to
1: me about how you write that and how you found your voice to be, um, well to be yourself.
0: Well, it started with the goal that we didn't just want to be another boring newsletter. From a from a from a numbers perspective, emails that have an actual a name attached to them and have some sort of like personal element to it always perform better from open rates to click through rates and just retention of your audience. So we knew we wanted to go the personal route. But we wanted people to get to know us and the people behind impact. So it actually didn't start as personal, I think, as I've made it. Mm -hmm. You know, there would be some sort of pithy introduction that related to one of the articles. Like, for example, if there was an article about Facebook, once again, being in the news for shocking, doing something bad with our data, (laughs) selling it, giving it to bad people. I don't know, making paper mache cats out of it. You know, I might have some sort of funny story in there about how when I was in college, I was one of the first people to have Facebook and the world was ending when they allowed people outside of the metro Boston area to be members of Facebook. Um, But then it sort of evolved as I just got more experimental to the point where... Uh, I've talked about my journey with weight loss. I have talked about my family history—a bunch of crazy Italian immigrants um, who put alcohol in every recipe known to man, including tuna fish. It can be done, <laughs> um, you know, just just things like that. Or this morning's issue uh, that went out, where it wasn't very long or in depth, but I drank too much coffee yesterday to the point where, quote, I could taste electricity. Um, You know, it's just whatever's in my head. I do try to keep it on some sort of theme. I do try to relate it to something that is below or has some sort of relevancy or meaning for the people behind uh, the people who are reading it. Um, Because it's not a diary. You know, it has to have some sort of relevance or context. For example, the the weight loss story was about how everybody can said I did such a great job in uh, Impact Live 2018. It was the first time I'd ever spoken at Impact Live. So I was really excited to see my video of my talk because A, I, I'm an only child. I love, I love validation more than I love breathing or cheese or pretty much anything else in this world. And I was so excited to see it and also to have an example of me talking so I could apply to other things and when I saw myself in that video I just cried. Like I had like a full on existential meltdown. I was depressed for more than I care to admit. And then finally I snapped myself out of it. And over the past year plus, I've been like working out, changing my diet. You know, I've seen a lot of results, but it was all about the fact that you can't expect big drastic results. If you aren't willing to commit to drastically changing what you're doing, you know, it's that mentality of, you see it all the time in digital sales and marketing. Like I want better results. I'm still going to touch the hot stove though. I'm not going to change anything about what I'm doing. I just want it better next time. You know, like, we keep doing the same things expecting a different outcome. So it's stuff like that.
1: Right, and, and I love how any anecdote has a reflection to go with it so that it is applicable, as you said, relevant. Um, otherwise, as you said, it's, it's just a diary and then mm-hmm. people will stop reading it. So did you, as you developed this voice, was there a sort of feedback loop that um, encouraged you, to, you know, to share and to, to make those anecdotes um, a part of this publication?
0: Well, there were two types of feedback. Um, one, if I'm not hearing from from the folks upstairs like like Bob Ruffalo and Marcus Sheridan who um, who run Impact that 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 I'm doing if I'm not hearing that I'm doing something wrong, I'm going to I'm going to keep going. You know, it's kind of one of those <laughs> ask for forgiveness not permission things. Um, but also I did hear back feedback from them like I would just get random right, like ha huh, that was great. I really like this. Um, and I also noticed as I started getting more personal, um, people started talking back to me. People would say things like, I really related to this. Wow. This really spoke to me. Oh my gosh. Preach, you know, things like that. I had a, I had an experience where that, that, uh, weight loss issue in particular, um, the CMO at Thomas shared it. And as a as an example of, you know, this is what change is really about. This story is really meaningful. This is what you're supposed to be doing. This is why change is so important. And that was really exciting for me as well. Um, So it's more just the more I put myself out there, the more I realized, hey, there's a lot more that I can get away with. Hmm. Um, Now, granted, it is a balancing act. You know, I can't... (laughs) You know, I can't just sit there and be like, let me tell you about the time I was depressed about something else. Like, it can't always be that kind of, you know, pound of flesh. You know, you can't be so overwrought that everybody's just like, hey, are are you okay? You know? So sometimes getting personal is, you know, being funny, being honest. Um, I wrote about how July 4th weekend, I made this big to do about going out for and buying a grill and like getting this great wood plank salmon and like all these things it was going to do. And then all I did was stay inside and watch stranger things and eat ice cream. Like that was what I did. Like the the grill didn't even come out, I think until a month and a half later. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's that, it's that kind of personal roundabout, you know, people respond that's how you know to keep going.
1: Um, So let me pivot slightly because we've talked about your sort of vulnerability, your ability to share uh, anecdotes about your life, et cetera. But I want to pivot to what you just said about how are we funny in prose. And in some (laughs) ways that's even harder. Um, So when you're writing something that you think has humor in it and you think is going to land Talk about those instincts and how you write that and how you sort of vet that. And if you share it with a team or with, um, you know, if you just kind of give it time and come back to it, like, how do you, how are you funny without sounding like you're trying to be funny? And we all know what it's like when a a comedian bombs.
0: Oh, God. Yeah. Um, So this is, oh, I'm going to answer this question, honestly, but part of me is just going to feel like afterward people go, man, really? That's what she does? Oh, she's not actually funny. So I consider myself a student of comedy. I love to laugh, but I've also always said, and I think I've said it on this podcast before, I can't remember though, that one of the places I derive my greatest inspiration for content marketing is actually humor. Um, Mostly because, for example, think about when you see a dramatic actor try to do comedy. (laughs) It's so painful a lot of the time. But when comedic actors make the jump from comedy to drama, yeah, the market might reject it because they just want to see somebody who they're used to making them laugh make them laugh. But nine times out of 10, they fall seamlessly into that dramatic role. And that's because people who do comedy, whether you're writing, whether you're performing, they have an innate sense of timing. They, in their bones, know how to read a room and, quite frankly, emotionally manipulate people. And that comes down to understanding who your audience is to a degree that is just exceptional and most people can't do it. And also knowing how to tell a story and being ruthless about what gets cut. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned that because I spend a lot of time reading the New Yorker humor section. I don't care if people don't think it's funny anymore. I love SNL. It's been one of my favorite television shows for years. And I actually even like the stuff that fails because I can kind of see where things broke down along the way. And so can they. Lorne Michaels has this famous quote that says, we don't go on at 1130 because we're ready. We go on because it's 1130. You know, and the fact that they're able to pull that off every week at 1130. Come on, guys. Are you going to be that funny all the time? So... I spent a lot of time studying it. And if you want to be funny, you need to start consuming humor in any form possible. Listen to podcasts. Like Conan needs a friend is a great one. (laughs) Um, Reading the New Yorker humor section. I really like that one because they do essays. They do comics. They do short little vignettes. It's a great way to get bite-sized pieces of humor from a broad range of uh, comedic writers um, Netflix comedy specials, even the ones you don't like, you have to learn what makes people laugh. You know, what makes you laugh, but if you want to be funny to a broader audience, you have to study it. Um, in terms of how that then translates into my writing, whether that's the latest or anything else, two things happen. One, I took off my filter and I want to come back to that later. Hopefully you have a question for it. Please Um, Because I found that's actually how I was able to get personal in a way that was authentic. Um, It's not necessarily starting to do something. It's stopping my filter. And then also just talking about what makes me laugh. And then being really specific with the words. You know, read through it. Don't be afraid to um, focus group your jokes. Like I focus grouped the one for this morning about... Because I'm like, well, what did my coffee taste like? Did it taste like electricity? Did it taste like feeling? So I focus grouped it while I was out um, at the gym this morning. And the one that landed was it tasted like electricity. <laughs> so like you kind of like, don't be afraid. Like, don't be like, hey, I have this, I have this joke I want to tell you. And like, you know, just let me know what you think of it. No, just like literally just deliver it as if that is the moment you were trying to tell the joke. And you'll see, you'll learn what lands and what doesn't. Um, And then over time, as you get more comfortable with your voice, you'll be able to spot like that feels awkward. You'll be able to spot when you're forcing it. And usually what keeps something from being funny is where we don't listen to that little voice inside of us going, there are too many words there. That's not going to land. You think you like, you want this to land, but you know, it's not going to, (laughs) you're just going to have that one lone voice in the background going, ha, ha. But like, not a, nobody else is going to
1: laugh. <laughs> like Nelson from The Simpsons.
0: Exactly.
1: So most people who are listening to this do not have the responsibility or opportunity to write a thrice weekly newsletter to 30,000 plus people. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about how anyone who's producing content can, be, can, can get personal in their writing. And I think that most people see writing as a really vulnerable process to begin with. They're self-conscious about it. There are flashbacks to, you know, essays with red pen all over them, et cetera. And whether you are a content manager, whether you're producing work that goes to a content manager and then gets published, how do you maybe be funny or share an anecdote or share something that makes you seem like you don't know everything, or, you know, in any way to be open, uh, I I think the benefits of that are huge. You know, people are going to engage with that way more. They're going to read it as genuine and authentic. They might laugh and therefore remember it, but the risks are also huge too. So how do you, um, how do you give advice to people about being personal in their writing when they might not have that same medium that you have?
0: The first thing I would say is that you have to understand that when you're feeling vulnerable and when you're feeling uncomfortable, people think of that as a bug in the process, a symptom or a sign that they're doing it wrong. Like they feel like it should feel like a positive experience where they don't feel like, uh, you know, that, you know, you are also a content creator. So, you know, that moment where you're like, I'm typing, I'm saying the right thing, but oh my God, why? Like that, whenever you're being vulnerable, that is not a bug. That is a feature. <laughs> like being vulnerable, don't look for it to feel like, oh yes, you know like i didn't sit down and write the latest about my weight loss journey like i'm excited to talk about that time i felt fat and cried about it like nobody nobody feels great with that now granted degrees of vulnerability you may not always be like going down to the depths of your soul and talking about the thing that makes you feel like crap that's not always going to happen but you have to understand that it's always going to feel a little bit uncomfortable you're always going to have that moment where you either mentally or sometimes physically in my case you know catch your breath a little bit and say, okay, I'm committing to writing this. This is the thing I'm going to write. You have to understand it's a feature, not a bug, not a symptom of a problem, not a symptom that you are not a good writer or you shouldn't be doing this. I'm sure Hemingway felt like crap too, which is why he has a thousand quotes about drinking. Um, But that is one part of it. The next thing I would say is that you need to think mentally about where you're putting yourself. Because I always tell people that I coach, when you sit down to write, don't imagine that you're writing an article to however many thousands of people that will read this. I want you to think that you're sitting across from the table from someone who makes you feel really comfortable and you're just having a conversation with them. Because I've noticed people sit down at the, at the keyboard and they're like, I have a posture where I'm going to write an article and I am going to sound smart. And they stop sounding like themselves. It's it's incredible to me. I there There is this one guy who works with us. His name is Dan Baum. And he wrote one article that really just popped with people about how he walked around for a really long time at Impact feeling like an imposter. You know, he wouldn't raise his hand. He wouldn't share ideas. He wouldn't do all of these different things because he felt like a less than or an other. Like he wasn't supposed to be there. And we had incredible response to that article because he had touched on something that so many people felt. In fact, his mother called him while we were at Impact Live and said, oh my gosh, I felt like this when I was feeling younger too and yada yada. And it was one of our most trafficked articles for the month. And that only came after I remember seeing the first draft and saying like, who is writing this? This doesn't sound like you. And so one of the things I always encourage people to do when they're really starting to get comfortable and getting personal, whether it's to the degree that you're sharing something deeply personal or you're just trying to sound like a human being, is just focus on sounding like yourself. Imagine like you're sitting across from someone who makes you feel comfortable and just talk to them. Stop trying to adopt this like different polished demeanor just because you happen to be sitting in front of a keyboard. And then I think the last thing I would say is that people are always looking to start doing something different in order to be human, but really it's just about stopping all of those reflexes that are telling you, no, don't do this, because that's just fear talking. We justify it and say like, oh, we shouldn't be saying this and we shouldn't be doing that. And granted, you know, contextually speaking, authenticity scales depending on your industry, what type of content you're in, yada, yada, yada. But the rest of that is just fear talking, you know, just start being yourself. Stop being who you think people want you to be.
1: That seems to go back to the idea of having a filter and removing yeah. a filter. Can you go back into what you were going to say before?
0: Oh, I think that was pretty much it. You know, it's just this notion that we tell ourselves to stop more than anything else. And then we wonder why we don't sound like human beings. Like you want to connect with your audience on a human to human, a one-to-one level. You want them to like you personally. And then you wonder why it doesn't happen even though you're giving nothing of yourself and you're trying to sound like someone who isn't you. Like it's like when you go out on a first date and you know you're not meeting that person for real, like you're meeting their PR and that they 100% (laughs) would never wear that outfit normally. Like there's this polish that that... That people respond to, like they may not initially and and uh, consciously recognize that what they're experiencing is inauthentic, but they know if you're not being you.
1: I think what's tricky is, in my role and in your role too, we're often the sort of arbiters of uh, of quality before it gets onto uh, the website, you know, Mm -hmm. before something gets published. And obviously, writers have to have notoriously thick skin rejection is a part of it. Um, and being shot down is, is, you know, part and parcel with putting words on a page. And it's, it's tough, because sometimes I think we have to amend our colleagues' work or, or cut things. And um, sometimes we might be the, hey, this didn't land, uh, you know, <laughs> the person who has to say that, while at the same time be, you know, saying, but I really liked your instincts. Thanks for you know, bringing personality to it. Thanks for being funny. Thanks for sharing some time that you struggled or something. And it's, uh, you know, it, it requires us to continually sort of coach them up and, and coach them forward to, to push through um, you know, any of those sort of stumbling blocks as they develop their own instincts. Because as you're saying, absolutely, we have a tendency to be austere and objective and sterile in our work and nobody wants to read that because it doesn't feel like a real person is writing.
0: really excited about this because we are introducing two new segments that you'll be hearing every single week learning quarter and what I'm reading and what's gonna be happening is that each week we are going to alternate one week John will be teaching you something and one week I will be telling you what I'm reading that's tickled my fancy and vice versa but this week we're starting with John who is gonna be teaching us about writing blog conclusions
1: so this is, I think, a common pain point for everyone who's writing, or, or almost anyone who's writing. And I, I was working with a colleague yesterday, actually, and she had written this immense, uh, detailed, and and really informative piece about um, brand ambassadors and uh, online conversations and sort of being stewards of our brand reputation online. And it was maybe five or six thousand words, full of detail and different sections, and then it just. Ended Like it hit a brick wall, you know, completely abruptly. And, and she's a really strong writer. And she said very clearly, I just hate writing conclusions. And whether it's that or whether it's a, a sort of short piece that Um, You know doesn't really feel like it knows how to end etc. Conclusions are something that we struggle with all the time So I want to give a couple tips just to sort of think about and to keep in mind when we are writing our conclusions When we're wrapping up blog articles or when we're helping colleagues produce the best writing that they can so The first tip, and this is what I gave my colleague yesterday, is I asked her to be self-referential. So she had started her blog post with this anecdote about buying a fish tank online and reading reviews, and that led her into this whole conversation about reviews and online content. Um, And it felt to me that it would really naturally wrap up her piece, too, if she went back to the fish tank anecdote. And... The whole idea was that if you are asked to write a review, you're more likely to write a review. And so she went back into this process of writing, of of buying a fish tank, but then no one followed up with her and she she didn't get any kind of, um, any sort of extended relationship with the uh, company she bought it with, uh, bought it from. And um, that, wrapped up her piece really nicely because if someone's reading a really long piece by the time they get to the end they're like oh yeah the fish tank that that is where this all started like sometimes we have conversations where we're like wait how are we talking about you know michael jackson's thriller like how did we get to this and if you walk each other back you can kind of be like oh yeah well we started talking about seventh grade algebra class and it's the whole progression and naturally her piece Lent itself to going back to the beginning. there was a, a gif in the beginning of the fish tank, and she went back to it and it was perfect. So be self-referential. go back to however you let into the piece um, and use that as your outro. Second, don't overthink it. We tend to you know put so much weight on conclusions, so just as I'm saying you want to be you know beautifully and 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 sort of easily self-referential, there are times that you know, it might feel a little bit forced, uh, a little bit like your seventh grade five paragraph essay, you know, where you're like, um, you know, why are whales great? Well, whales are great because reason A, reason B, reason C. In conclusion, whales are great because reason A, B and C. You don't have to necessarily completely restate what you've done, especially in a shorter piece. Have some faith in in your readers. You know, you don't have to necessarily remind them. Remember that it took you way longer to write it that it took them to read it, um, so they're probably not in a place where they've forgotten your earlier points. So I know I'm sort of contradicting myself, but I think there are some times where you can just kind of, you know, wrap it up. Uh, third tip is think about next steps for your audience. You know, are there are there questions that uh, they might still have? You know, maybe this is a time to point them to a source. Uh, for answers to those questions. Or there might be questions that you don't know either. Um, A lot of the work that I do at Impact is writing about news. Um, So a piece might end with something like, you know, Google has yet to announce the rollout for this, but here's where to find more information about it. Um, So we can kind of, you know, almost leave, uh, leave the piece off with a question of, will this have an impact? We don't know. But Here's how you can find out, or here's what you should be watching for, or here's why this might be worth trying or adopting or something like that. So those are my three topics. I know this might be something that we go into in more depth because it certainly seems uh, relevant and and common as a a pain point. But think about using your intro as a way out. Um, Think about, you know, don't feel like you have to overthink it and summarize all of your points because the people reading it have probably not forgotten Um, And third, think about, you know, either resources to point your reader to, questions and answers that might um, interest them and and lead them into further exploration, or to leave them with a question if you don't know the answer either. You know, will chatbots become a a bigger uh, feature on all websites? Um, You don't know, we don't know. So leaving with a question sometimes is fine. And any of those feels like a very natural conclusion to whatever you're writing about, if it feels like it serves your reader. So those are my three thoughts uh, from the pieces that I've been looking at and the writers I've been talking to recently. That is such a great teach because I
0: have, I've always had this compulsion, even though I know what the best practices are. Sometimes when you get to the end of your article or your blog post or whatever it is that you're writing, you're just being like, all right guys, that's it. Like you already saw how smart I was. You got what you needed. Like, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. <laughs> Bye. Turn off the lights.
1: <laughs> but, yeah, and I think if you're in that position, it's never a bad idea to, like, leave it there and walk away for a day uh, and come back to it, read through it, and get to that sort of right before the conclusion place where you stopped you know, and if you've left it for 24 hours, come back, read through it right up to that point, and then just kind of start writing without thinking about it too much. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You'll get, you'll get some, um, you know, you'll, you'll naturally put yourself in the place of your reader and think about the questions or anything that might be lingering from the content that's above.
0: Yeah, one of the panic button tricks I teach people with conclusions is like, if you, if you really are struggling, if you really are just like, I do not know what to put here, I tell them, okay, here's what you need to do. Think of your audience as if they are a concussed goldfish and they only have the ability to retain <laughs> one golden thought or piece of wisdom from everything that you just shared. What is the one thing they need to remember about what you just said and why is that that one thing? You know, th- and that's, that's when you've exhausted all your other resources. But ultimately, when you, when you think about a conclusion holistically... You're just telling people what to do with that information. You've laid out your case. You've given them tons of examples or a massive process that feels overwhelming. Or you've just brain dumped all of these big ideas. What the heck are they supposed to do with all of that now? And that's really what the purpose of a conclusion is. It's, it's not that thing we learned in middle school where it's like restate the thesis and all of your supporting ideas and then bid them farewell. Like it's, that's not what it's really supposed to be. It's supposed to, essentially, it's supposed to be like a little, a little launch pad for them. Like, okay, now go forth. This is what you do with that thing. This is how you start. This is where you go. This is what you immediately do right now, you know? So I love teach. That. that was such a good one. All right. So, so I'm reading.
1: What are you reading right now, Liz?
0: So it's so funny. I thought this would be completely random and out of left field, but because we ended up talking about humor so much, it's not. So newsflash, New Yorker humor section, my favorite, my boo. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away before I became the digital marketing person that I am today, I was, a, I was an insufferable startup rat in Washington, D.C., you know, all of those tech startups that were happening in like the mid to late to early 2000s. That was me. I was there. I worked at Living Social. I wore all the terrible clothing. I sipped all the lattes. But there was one thing that you would find at any of these startups, acronym-based or otherwise, and that is there was this like perverse obsession with failure. Like it was almost as... They would talk about failure in the same... Like romanticized terms as they would about success to the point where it was like, wait, are we trying to succeed or are we trying to fail? And I found this essay this week and it's called The Secret to Success is Failure, or I guess not failing would also work. And it just so perfectly captures how ridiculous that this like obsession with failure would get. And you you don't just see it in tech startups and like Silicon Valley. You see this in a lot of young companies where, you know, everybody's got the open floor plan and we're all wearing bonobos and we're all wearing like our little North face like fleece vests. and. Now, granted, we have an open floor plan and Impact, and it's great, and I love it, and we're all wonderful, and we actually are obsessed with failure and success in the right ways, but you all know what I'm talking about. But the opening passage is just so perfect. People always ask me how I've achieved so much in my life. Everyone wants success, but most of us are too scared to go after it. We're scared of the rejection and isolation that comes with putting ourselves out there. We're scared to fail. However unpleasant as feelings of failure may be, they're actually good for you. You see, the secret to success is experiencing tons of failure. Although, now that I think about it, not experiencing tons of failure would also technically be a path to success because if you don't fail, then you have, by definition, succeeded. So it's not like you needed to fail. In fact, not failing suddenly seems preferable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so it's it's a perfect essay again it's called the secret to success is failure or i guess not failing would also work it's exceptionally funny and as i said if you're looking for a master class in humor writing that is your destination and i would recommend that
1: being your first read
0: anyway john we just came to the end of our our first episode together we did Anyway, for you all listeners, we will be back next week with a brand new episode. But uh, until then, mind your P's, Q's, and your commas. Bye.
1: Bye Bye-bye.